Well, let's open our Bibles one more time on a Sunday morning to the book of Isaiah. I love the book of Isaiah. This has been quite a ride for me. I've told a few of you that I don't think I've ever studied harder for a a series of teachings through a book than I have through Isaiah. It's, It's just been such a remarkable challenge and blessing to go through. I uh, have dreams about Isaiah. It's just <laughs> a little frightening. But I pray that this is the last Sunday we will open up to Isaiah for study. And I pray that because we, we will finish up chapter 66 on Wednesday night. But I pray that because I hope we don't get to come all the way around the horn and back around to Isaiah again. I hope that long before uh, we get to that point, Jesus will have come Amen. and taken us home to be with Him. And I say that from time to time. I, you hear me make little sideline references, you know, to uh, see you next week if we're here, you know, all that. And I really believe Jesus called us to live that way. The Word of God says be ready. And so I am constantly trying to uh, prepare myself to be in a state of readiness. Readiness for Jesus' return. I don't think it's nutty or weird or strange to be looking every day for Jesus' coming. That's what we were told to do. And so we look for Him and He changes our behavior even as our eyes are fixed on Him. And we think about Him in everything we do. The more we do that, my friends, the, the closer to Him we become. And He is going to come. At a certain point in time, He is going to punch a hole through time and come down and grab His church and pull us out. Paul tells us that in 1 Thessalonians 4. You've heard all these things. And I have such a certainty about the prophecies of Scripture because so many of the prophecies of Scripture have been fulfilled to the letter. This morning we're going to look at one, one that you may have heard before, one that I've referenced many times. It's a prophecy that I heard for the first time, oh wow, it's probably about 12 years ago and I've been pondering it ever since. And I've pondered it so much, thought about it so much, and even referenced it so many times, I almost thought that we wouldn't talk about this on a Sunday morning. And yet, I came to it again, and this is something I think we have to see, but perhaps not for the reasons I've given in the past. Isaiah 66, the last chapter of this book. And I remind you, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, just like there are oh, 66 chapters in the Bible. 39 chapters make up the first section of Isaiah, just as 39 chapters make up the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. 27 chapters begin with chapter 40 and run through chapter 66. And chapter 40 begins, Comfort, O comfort my people. And so that last part of the book is all about comfort, bringing comfort to Israel. 27 chapters there, just like there are 27 chapters in the New Testament. And I think that's wonderful. Beginning in verse 7 of Isaiah 66, a passage, a few verses here, that stumbled Bible commentators for centuries. Verse 7, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Now what woman wouldn't like that? (laughs) Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? Father, what a remarkable passage. 
Remarkable in that we have seen this. And I pray though it may be something that has been heard, perhaps understood. I pray for fresh revelation here and understanding, Lord. I ask You to help us see why You put this in, why You did this the way You did this. And even, Lord, to apply it to us right now, not selfishly, Lord, but apply it to our faith. We pray for an application of Your Word and Your Spirit to our faith, to strengthen faith, Father, to heal faith for some, to build up faith, that we might truly be people who are looking for the coming day of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we rely on You now to help us learn in Jesus' name. Amen. May 14th, 1948. It is a date that every believer in Jesus Christ should have in mind, should be aware of. May 14th, 1948. Both the most stunning prophecy and the most difficult birth that has ever taken place in our time. Now we often talk about Bible prophecies and how they were fulfilled previously or how they will be fulfilled in the future. We talked about Cyrus. Remember back in the earlier parts of Isaiah? How Isaiah, the Lord called out the name Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was born. And Cyrus would be the one who would shepherd his people Israel, send them back to the land. 150 years later, after Isaiah is dead, a man named Cyrus is raised up. Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon and sends the people of Israel back to their land, just as God said. Well, that's wonderful. It's encouraging. It's past tense. And people sometimes say, I wish God would fulfill a prophecy in our day. You know, something that we can look at and say, that's exactly what He said would happen. Well, He has done that. He's done that in more places than one. May 14th, 1948, a land was born in one day. A nation was brought forth all at once. When Isaiah penned these words, you need to think about this, the kingdom of Judah still stood. There was still a temple on the Temple Mount when Isaiah wrote, can a land be born in a day? A land was there. The southern kingdom of Judah. And there would be several kings in the lifetime of Isaiah. We've talked about those kings, the most prominent of which was Hezekiah, who was a good king. And God did mighty things to protect the people of Judah in those days when the entire Assyrian army came up against Jerusalem and camped around it, 180,000. And God wiped them out. So that after the prayers of Isaiah and Hezekiah and the people, King Hezekiah went and looked out over the city of Jerusalem, out to the fields below, and there was 180,000 dead Assyrians. I love how the Bible describes that. They woke up to find themselves dead. (laughs) Probably not an exact translation. But the people of Israel woke up and and the enemy, the threat, the menace was gone, done. Well, that's remarkable in and of itself. But when he penned these words... A hundred years later, that marvelous temple was destroyed. Burned to the ground by Babylon. Just as God had decreed. And just as God decreed 70 years later, after all those people were taken into captivity in Babylon, 70 years later, they came back into the land. They built the second temple. And it was, well, it paled in comparison to the first one. Ezra tells us the old men, when they saw it, wept for the difference. The young men shouted for joy because, hey, we have a temple again. 
But those who had not seen it didn't understand the glory was gone. And we have nothing in Scripture that tells us the Spirit of the living God filled the second temple. We know the first one was filled. We know nothing about whether or not His Spirit actually filled the second. Although, Jesus would walk into the courts of the second temple when He came along years later. I'm getting ahead of myself. For the next 500 years after the people of Israel came back, they lived in the land. 500 years of struggle and oppression and difficulty and invasion. You see, the land of Israel sat between warring nations. And often the land of Israel became the battleground itself, even though the people of Judah really weren't part of the skirmish. They got caught up in it. They were oppressed by every warring nation that came down. Greece for a long time, and then Greece split into four different kingdoms, and they all warred and fought over Israel. And for 500 years this would go on. Just as the prophet Daniel, by the way, describes explicitly through his prophecy. The last power to enter the world stage, you know, was Rome. Rome rose up, the Pax Romana, you know, the the peace of Rome that spread out. and, And it wasn't that peaceful, it was pretty oppressive, especially for the people of Israel. And then a Jew named Jesus was born. And there began to be a following. People saw this one. And and over a period of three years, it it happened very quickly. Massive amounts of people were calling out, could He be the one? Could He be the Messiah? And He claimed to be the one. And then Rome had Him crucified. His own people rejected Him. And in the conclusion of Jesus' final public sermon, He said in Matthew 23-37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Following Jesus' rejection by Israel, the worst case scenario occurred for the Jewish people. 70 AD, another date you Bible students have in mind, Rome finally had had enough with the Jewish people and invaded Jerusalem, invaded the land, wiped out the people. It was a massive destruction. 70 AD, the second temple burned down. On the same day the first temple burned down, on the 9th of Av, long about our August time frame, The ninth of Av on the Hebrew calendar, the first temple burned. And the second temple now in A.D. 70 burned, same day. Josephus tells us, the historian Josephus tells us, 1.1 million Jews were killed by Rome. Another 97,000 were captured and pulled off into captivity. But there was still a number of Jews that stayed in the land. They were heavily oppressed, but there were some there. And they began to grow a bit. And by 118 A.D., something else changed. The emperor Hadrian rose to power. Now, a lot of times we hear the word Hadrian or the name Hadrian, and if you've studied these things, you think, oh, Hadrian, yeah, he put down the Jews. Not at first. In 118, when he came to power, he was at first sympathetic to the Jews. Hadrian was the one who allowed the Jews to return to their land. And they did. They flooded back into the land. He said it would be okay if you want to rebuild your temple, you can build it again. And the Jewish people were like, Hadrian, Hadrian, he's our man. (laughs) But like many politicians, he flip-flopped. 
And very quickly, he changed his mind. Ah, you can build your temple, but not on your temple mount. You can build it somewhere else. And then, as there began to be some protests against him among the Jewish people, Hadrian began deporting Jews to North Africa. That didn't go over well either. In 132 AD, a man by the name of Shimon ben Kosiba led a revolt. You may know his name if you studied this, Shimon Bar Kokhba. The Bar Kokhba Revolt. Bar Kokhba means son of the star. And this, this man led a revolt in Israel, and it was impressive. Even after all the destruction they had gone through, even against mighty Rome, they actually began to spread out and increase land holding of the Jewish people. From 132 to 135, they fought back hard against Rome. But of course, Rome outnumbered, and Hadrian began to send in tons of forces... And in 135 A.D., on the 9th of Av, there was a bloody massacre at a place called Batar. And there at Batar, the Jews were wiped out. Hadrian, completely fed up with these Jewish rebels, banished all Jews from the land. Now, there have always been Jews in the land. Sometimes they would change their name. Sometimes they would just kind of hide out. There's always been a Jewish presence there. But Hadrian in 135 said, that's it, all Jews out, and he renamed the land. Do you know what he named it? Palestine. Palestina, named by a Roman as an insult to the Jews. Because Palestine, in the Latin, Palestina means Philistine country. The Philistines had long been wiped out. They didn't even exist as a people by that point. But Hadrian said, I'm going to call this land by the Jews' worst enemy, Palestine, Philistine country. For 1,800 years, the Jewish presence in the land was scant, but it was there. For 1,800 years plus, or minus a few, it was called Palestine. The world came to accept it as the land of Palestine. And you know what there were in those days? Palestinian Jews and Palestinian Arabs. In fact, prior to 1948, that's what you were known. You were a Palestinian. Whether you were a Jew or an Arab, it didn't make any difference. If you lived in Palestine, you were a Palestinian because that was the name of the land. It wasn't a people group. And I still will stand up and say there is no such people group as the Palestinians. It's a lie. I'm not trying to disparage. I've said before, we have brothers and sisters who are called Palestinians. Did you know that? There are Christian Palestinians. There are believers in Jesus who who live in what the media likes to call the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. But the land was called Palestine. And the Jews were Palestinian Jews and the Arabs, Palestinian Arabs. And again, 1,800 years went by. Fast forward. In the late 19th century, The very idea of a Jewish state was gone. Nobody could imagine. Now, I've read a couple of commentaries from the 1800s, and it's really interesting. Bible scholars talk about Israel as though it would exist again someday. And the only reason they did that is because the Bible said it would. And they believed God's Word to be true. And so they would say, eventually, someday, when Israel is is born, when Israel is in the land again, well then, these things can take place, but who knows if or when or how that could possibly happen. Anti-Semitism in the late 1800s was on the rise again. But you need to understand this. With every new birth, and we're going to talk about here the birth of a nation, the birth of a land, there is always a moment of conception. In the late... 1800s, 1894, five decades before 
Israel was born as a nation. It was called the Dreyfus Affair. You students of history may recall or have read something about the Dreyfus Affair. It happened in France. It was a big deal. It was absolutely divisive in the land of France. The Dreyfus Affair. A man by the name of Alfred Dreyfus, who was a captain in the French army, was accused of selling secrets as a spy to the Germans. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jew. Alfred Dreyfus was set up. In fact, they would find this out several years later. He would be exonerated after 12 years, although he spent much of that 12 years in Devil's Island. But he was set up and brought to trial. And in that trial, what was horrific and what really began to show in that time, especially to Jews around the world, what shocked them was the boldness of the anti-Semitism that was going on. Simply because he was a Jew. Dreyfus would have an absolutely public humiliation. They brought him out into the public square in Paris, France. And there, dressed in his military uniform as a very proud man, a Jewish man, but a man who was a part of the French army, they stripped his ribbons and medals off of his uniform and threw them to the ground. As Alfred Dreyfus stood there at attention, they took his sword and broke it and threw it on the ground. But perhaps the most frightening thing that was going on is the crowd all around him were chanting, Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews! There was a news reporter there that day, sent from Vienna, who was a Hungarian-born Jew by the name of Theodor Herzl. Theodor Herzl witnessed this whole thing. And as he watched this, himself a Jew, in the crowd, chanting, Death to the Jews! Herzl didn't know what to do with himself. This was an event that deeply, deeply affected this man. He returned to Vienna, but his whole life's focus had changed in one instant. He returned to Vienna recognizing that there was no safety for the Jewish people in the world. There was no way they would ever survive as a people if they didn't have a homeland. Herzl's answer to anti-Semitism was Zionism. Now let's clarify, what is Zionism? It is the hope for a Jewish homeland. Zionism simply says the Jewish people have a land that belongs to them and they have a right to live there. That's Zionism in its most simple form. And Herzl was the one who spurred this Three years after this happened, this Dreyfus affair, while Dreyfus sat in prison, Herzl came and and convened the first Zionist conference, 1897, in Basel, Switzerland. He gathered Jewish leaders from around the world, and he shared with them his vision. He had written a, a pamphlet, The Jewish State. You can get it today. Talking about the need for a place of protection. And by the way, they weren't always or only just looking at the land of Palestine at that time. They were looking at some land in Uganda. (laughs) They were looking at land anywhere they could find enough land for the Jewish people worldwide to come back together and live in security and peace. Listen to what Theodore Herzl wrote at the conclusion of that conference in 1897. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state. If I said this aloud today, I would be answered by universal laughter. Perhaps in five years. And certainly in 50 years, everyone will know it. 50 years later, the state of Israel was born. Of course, before this dream was realized, the nightmare of the Nazi Holocaust would bring about the death of one-third of the Jewish population of the world. Six million Jews 
would be massacred. Following that, November 29, 1947, UN Resolution 181 passed remarkably. It was called the Palestine Partition Plan. 33 nations voted for it. 13 nations voted against it. 10 nations, including Great Britain, abstained. Jews immediately accepted the resolution. Arabs walked out on it and said, we will not accept it. And immediately began terror attacks in Israel. Now there had been a few going on up until that time, but they began in earnest. Six months later, under threat of total annihilation if they should do so, the Jewish Provisional Council gathered together in the Tel Aviv Museum. And on May 14, 1948, at 4 p.m., Israel declared their independence as a nation. Based on the UN partition plan, voted upon and agreed upon by the majority of nations, they accepted that plan and they declared themselves a nation. I wish I had the graphic for you up here, but if you could see the UN partition plan, look that up when you get a chance. Look it up on Google. What was the UN partition plan for Israel? And it's this chopped up, measly little indefensible state. But the Jewish people said, we'll take it. Even though they had been promised prior to this, oh man, I have to go back. In 1917, they were promised in what's called the Balfour Declaration, they were promised all of what today is Israel and Jordan. That entire landmass. The British government at that time, under the leadership there of, of Lord Balfour, said, let's, let's give this, we recommend this be given to the Jewish people. But again, like most politicians, they flip-flopped. And they backtracked. And what they ended up offering Israel, the UN partition plan, was a tiny little measly country, smaller than what is even Israel today. May 14, 1948. David Ben-Gurion read the Declaration of Independence announcing the establishment of the State of Israel. In Hebrew, note this, in Hebrew, Eretz Israel. Eretz Israel. That announcement ends with this statement, We appeal to the Jewish people throughout the diaspora to rally around the Jews of Eretz Israel and the tasks of immigration and upbuilding and to stand by them in the great struggle for the realization of the age-old dream, listen, the redemption of Israel. Placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation at this session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv on this Sabbath Eve, the fifth day of Iyar 5708, that is May 14th, 1948. Hanging on the wall behind David Ben-Gurion as he proclaimed the independent state of Israel was a large portrait of Theodore Herzl. Theodore Herzl was not at that declaration. You see, he had died in 1904 of cardiac sclerosis at the age of 44. He would never see the Jewish state, other than in his mind, or perhaps better, in his heart. At 6.11 p.m. that same day, May 14, 1948, make sure you know it, the first world government to recognize the, the new Jewish state 
drafted and wired the following letter. This government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel, signed Harry S. Truman. And it was a bold move because our own State Department was against it. Our own State Department said, let the Arabs take them out. We don't want to mess with oil. (laughs) But Harry Truman manned up and sent that letter. Russia quickly acknowledged as well not to be shown up by the United States. May 15, 1948, five Arab nations attacked Israel. Five of them. Massively outgunned, massively outmanned, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, troops from Saudi, and additional troops from Iraq flooded against the land of Israel, attacking the newborn Jewish state, and they were determined to destroy it. By February, Egypt would be signing an armistice agreement with Israel because they couldn't continue the war. And each one of the states followed over the two or three months following that. And this past May... Israel celebrated the 64th anniversary of the day of its independence. Of course, their independence was hard fought. It cost 6,000 Jewish lives. How tragic. Especially in the memory of those who would know that 6 million Jewish lives were lost just before this war. And it would cost them even more. Why the Hebrew history lesson? (laughs) Why go back and cover all these things and think through it? Gang, this, this isn't history. We're not talking about history this morning. The geopolitical landscape is as focused on Israel today as it was in the early days of its birth, if not more so. The whole entire world keeps its eye on this little state. It's watching to see what is going to happen next with this little state. God proclaimed it, Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So today, Egypt, Egypt who would attack Israel in 1948, Egypt today sits now under the authority of the Muslim Brotherhood, an authority that wants to revisit the peace treaty that they had signed with Israel. Perhaps to revoke. We watch those things to see what's going to happen. Syria. Syria today is imploding. It's it's a desperate time for the Syrians and for that regime. The Assad regime is very near at its end and, and people in the Israeli Knesset and Israeli leaders are saying if Syria implodes and the Assad regime is thrown out, It'll be a very, very dangerous situation. Well, why is that? Well, this rogue nation gang has biochemical weapons. Who's going to have control of them when the Assad regime falls? Sometimes better the devil you know than the one you do not. Lebanon today. Lebanon is completely overrun by Hezbollah, the arch enemy of Israel. Their stated goal is the end of Israel. It's why Hezbollah exists. It's why Hamas exists down in the Gaza Strip. To destroy Israel. Hamas that is in league with Fatah in the West Bank. These Palestinian people, or at least the Palestinian leaders of Hamas and Fatah, 
They see nothing but the destruction of Israel, complete annihilation. Iran. Iran is today on the fast track of a nuclear weapon. Israel has continued to threaten attack. Part of those threats have been to try and keep Iran from moving forward. But the longer we go and the less the threats are heeded, the more likely that attack is. Some say it could come as as early as this fall. In fact, Israel could be days away. They're very good at not letting people know what they're about to do. I was reading in the newspaper this morning that said, without government approval, there will not be an attack on Iran. So Israel's going to have to get government approval out of the Knesset before they can attack. And I'm thinking, very likely that could be a backroom conversation to throw everybody off so they they can attack. You never know what Israel's going to do. We do know know that on August 2nd of this year, the New York Times quoted the head, a former head of the Israeli Mossad, their secret service, Ephraim Halevi, who said, if I was an Iranian, I would be very fearful for the next 12 weeks. <laughs> a Hezbollah MP, Walid Sakira, stated on Friday of this last week that Iran's nuclear program, quote, is intended to finish off the Zionist enterprise. The entire equation in the Middle East will change as quoted in the Times of Israel, August 10th. The entire equation will change. (laughs) There's one important factor that none of these countries, including our own, are thinking through. There's one thing that nobody's adding. Even Israel seems to be missing this factor to the overall equation. God. (laughs) We cannot forget to factor in God, who truly is, as the Bible tells us, the sum of all things. He's the sum and the factor. And this is what we, as Christians, need to understand and why I took you through all this history. We've got to know and affirm that God determines the birthright of Israel to the land. God determined that birthright millennia ago. said, this is your land to Abraham, to Isaac, Through Jacob, God said, this is your land. Turning your Bibles back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, or forward actually, forward to Jeremiah 31, the next book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 1. I just want to read you these 12 verses. Listen to what God says through the prophet about this whole situation. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when it went to find its rest. The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And by the way, everlasting doesn't just go back, it goes forward. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt. O virgin of Israel, again you will take up your tambourines, sorry Tom, and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. What is Samaria today? Anyone? The West Bank. God's Word. 
The planters will plant and will enjoy them. For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim, also today's West Bank, will call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And shout among the chief of the nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Now this is a whole teaching we could do, probably will do when we get to Jeremiah. But note something in verse 6. I just got to point this out. The word watchman there is not sar. Not sar. It's where the name Nazarene comes from. Watchman. Nazarene. But it's in the plural form. These watchmen, these Nazarenes. And I think, and this could just be me, but I think this may be a reference to Christians. Followers of the Nazarene himself, Jesus, the Nazarenes on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For the Lord says, now speaking to Christians, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. And shout among the chief of nations, proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Well, who's who's supposed to sing that song? We are. That's our song. Verse 8. Behold, I am bringing them from the north country. I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and she who is in labor with child together. A great company. They will return here. With weeping they will come, and by supplication I will lead them, and I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Note that it's not just Judah coming back from Babylon that he's talking about. It's all of Israel, all of his people from the distant parts of the earth coming back to the land. And he says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations! and declare in the coastlands afar off, or the islands afar off, which is part of why we're doing this this morning, declare in the islands and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion. They will be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden. And note this, they will never languish again. Never again. Well, the Jews who came back from Babylon, around 500, languished for 500 years, though they lived in the land. Languished all the way up to AD 70 when they would be dispersed and thrown out and driven completely out of the land. There was massive languishing and has been ever since. There has not been a time since the Jews went into Babylonian captivity. There has not been a time when they haven't at some level been languishing. God says a time is coming when I will gather them to the land and they will never languish again. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, it's very simple. Believe it. Because it is the Word of God. Here's what I want you to understand. It is not the rights of the nation of Israel that primarily concern us. It is the righteous determination of God. That's why Pastor Rick is pro-Israel. In fact, better, better said, it's not even being pro-Israel or, pro or anti-Arab. Not at all. It's about being pro-God. He has made a righteous determination. He has said, I will do this. And because He says it, I believe it. 
Because He determines it, I accept it. And Paul says in Romans 11.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's one to note. Romans 11.29. By His irrevocable, righteous determination, God declared through Isaiah the prophet the greatest birth announcement in all of history. The greatest birth announcement. But that announcement is not of the birth of Israel. Let me throw you for a loop. The greatest birth announcement in all of history was not that Israel would come back and be a nation. I'm hearing the name. Jesus. Isaiah 7.14 The prophet said, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. And for those who would try to undermine that verse, I encourage you to go back and listen to the teaching we did on that. It's online. You can hear it. Because it's irrefutable. Not because I spoke it, but because the Word says. In describing the birth of Jesus Christ, Matthew, the Gospel writer, made sure to remind us of Isaiah's divine prophetic birth announcement. In Matthew 1.22, he said, All of this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And it was a special delivery. Special delivery. And not just because we celebrate that every year at Christmas. You may be wondering, Rick, why did you just tangent off? You know, we're in August. It's too hot to be talking about the birth of Jesus and the Christ child and all that. Why suddenly go back to the early birth announcement of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14? Because here at the close of Isaiah, God does. Look at verse 7. Isaiah 66, verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That boy was and is Jesus Christ. That is a prophecy of Jesus, very clearly stated in the whole timeline of what would happen to Israel. Follow the flow in these three verses. We have a kind of a timeline of delivery. And it all begins with a peaceful delivery. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth. And it is a peaceful delivery. Who is she? Now some would jump out and say Mary, but I would say there's a larger representation here. She is Israel. We're talking about Israel. Israel would give birth to a boy. In the singular, we're not talking about some vague metaphor here. She being Israel would give birth to a boy, a a, a man-child, literally, in the Hebrew. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. She is Israel. The sun and the moon and the twelve stars, direct from Joseph's dream of his family, talking about his mom, his dad, his twelve brothers, the family of Jacob. Israel is the mother. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 tells us, Paul writes, From whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever? Amen. Talking again about Israel. From Israel, Jesus came. Jesus was a Jew. You all know this. 
The child was born. But note this in the verse. Verse 7 again. Before she travailed. Before she gave birth. And it was a peaceful, quiet, relatively calm birth. In fact, the word for birth there in the Hebrew is an interesting word. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. It's not the usual word that's used for birth. It's the word malat. Malat in the Hebrew means to let slip out. In other words, a quick, easy delivery. And I think we could probably add that to the list of things that we know about the birth of Jesus. That Mary's delivery may not have been so difficult. If this word is, you know, if we're taking and understanding this correctly, before her pain came. Jesus, gang, was born before those nearly 1900 or 19 centuries of painful dispersion. 1878 years to be exact of painful, painful labor from AD 70 all the way up to 1948. Jesus was born before that. Before the pain came. Before the travailing came. And the birth of Christ was as peaceful as a manger in Bethlehem. As quiet and unpretentious as a visit from shepherds. Yes, we have the glorious angels singing in the sky. Giving the announcement. Sending the shepherds on. But by the time they get there, there's just you know a few cows, some sheep. A child in a manger. Mom and dad. Very unassuming. Before Israel's pain. Well, wait a minute, Rick. What, what about the horrific deaths of all the male infants around Bethlehem? Note this. Jesus was delivered easily, painfully, peacefully before Herod's murderous rampage on all those little ones. Before Herod decreed the murder of all the male children two years old and under surrounding Bethlehem. Why two years old and under? Because by that time, Jesus had already been around probably a year, maybe almost two. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he determined from the Magi. And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, Ramah, about six miles outside of Bethlehem. Weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And so there was a massive slaughter of infant babies at that time by Herod. But note this, the wise men, the Magi, visited Jesus in a house in Bethlehem, not in the manger. This is going to totally blow up your manger scene. Really mess them up. What you need to do is set up your little manger scene this Christmas, but put the Magi like in another part of the room. And when people come in and go, why are they there with the... Well, they still have about a year to go <laughs> before they show up there. It was a peaceful birth, but then when the Magi came, they saw Mary, the child, they brought the gifts in a house in Bethlehem by that time. And then when they left, Herod realized he'd been tricked and the murder began. The birth of Jesus was before the pain of Israel. Before she travailed. Which is unusual. Before the pain came, the birth happened. Blessed is the woman who gives birth before the travail. (laughs) Before the pain. 
Well, the special delivery of Jesus was peaceful, not true with the birth of modern Israel. It was also a special delivery, but it was a painful delivery. Look at verse 8. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. As I've already described, the pain of 1878 years culminated in the Nazi Holocaust. The worst pain that Israel would feel. 1.1 million Jews massacred in AD 70. 6 million Jews massacred in the Nazi Holocaust. It was far worse, far more painful, far more worldwide. And no country has ever been birthed out of more travail than Israel. Psalm 102 talks about this. Psalm 102, I believe, is a prophecy of that Holocaust. Just listen to these verses. Psalm 102, verses 3 through 5. For my days have been consumed in smoke. My bones have been scorched like a hearth. My heart has been smitten like grass and has withered away. Indeed, I forget to eat my bread. Because of the loudness of my groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. My enemies have reproached me all day long. Those who deride me have used my name as a curse. Psalm 102, verse 8. Verse 9 says, listen, For I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. And Elie Wiesel, in his book Night, not referencing Psalm 102, Elie Wiesel described a cold morning as he stood outside in Auschwitz with his cup of thick, black, nasty coffee when he noticed in his coffee ashes and looked up and saw ashes all in the sky. And he and the rest of the Jews with him there realized exactly what those ashes were. Coming from the crematoriums. Smoking out of huge billowy smokestacks. The ashes of murdered Jews. How amazing that in Psalm 102 we hear, I have eaten ashes like bread and mingled my drink with weeping. Who could possibly have foreseen, as Elie Wiesel stood there in that courtyard, who could have foreseen that within a matter of just a few years, on a single day, Israel would be born as a nation? Even as the people were being wiped out. The brutality of Bergen-Belsen The ashes of Auschwitz. The terror of Treblinka. Who could imagine that out of that labor, Israel would be born? But Israel was. By the way, note this. The word land in verse 8, can a land be born in a day? Is Eretz. Eretz. Can Eretz be born in a day? And the modern state of Israel in the Hebrew is called Eretz. Israel. Verse 9, the Lord asks, Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? A peaceful delivery, the delivery of Jesus Christ, followed by a painful delivery, 1878 years of long, hard labor in the birth of the land of Israel. And number three, a promised deliverance. 
the Lord takes a step beyond the birth of the nation. And I say this again, this is not about the rights of the nation of Israel, it is about the righteous determination of God. God does not start something and leave it unfinished. It's not how He works. When He starts something, He sees it through all the way to the end. Keep your finger here and go back to Genesis, all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 17, the beginning of Scripture there. Genesis 17, verse 3. God speaking to Abraham. You know the father. We call him the father of the faith. But he's truly the father of the Jewish people. It is from the loins of Abraham that the Jews would come. Through his son Isaac. Through his son Jacob. And I have to always point that out. Because there are those who believe that the promise from Abraham came through his son Ishmael. Who God never recognized as the firstborn son of Abraham. The Bible tells us God did not recognize Ishmael. He only recognized Isaac as the firstborn because Isaac was born of the marriage of Abraham and Sarah, not of the affair, if you will, the adultery of Abraham and Hagar, which was Ishmael. But a promised deliverance. Listen to what the Lord says. Verse 3. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. Note that, an everlasting covenant. Not a covenant with a certain prescribed amount of time. To be a God to you and to your descendants after you. Verse 8, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. And not one time in verses 6, 7, and 8 does God say, you're going to do this, Abraham. All he says is, I will do this. This is my job. This is my covenant. And I will see this through. Regardless of what you do, son, I'm on it, he says. Skip down to verse 15. And then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will be in mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Abraham fell on his face, and he laughed. And said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. (laughs) Laughter. Because you can't seem to stop cracking up, Abraham. Let's just name your son. Laughter so that every time you see him, you remember that you weren't sure that you laughed at what I said would happen. Lots of people laughing at what God said would happen today. Lots of people saying it's impossible. It's not going to come to be. In fact, entire magazine and newspaper articles written about how Israel cannot sustain itself as a Jewish nation. That Israel is unsustainable 
They cannot continue. They cannot go forward. Well, the Lord said, As for Ishmael, verse 20, I've heard you. Behold, I'll bless him, and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve nations, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. And of course, you know the story. She did. The key word in all of what God said to Abraham was I. I will do this, which tells me the United Nations is irrelevant. It tells me the support of America is insignificant. All the anti-Israeli forces of the world, impotent. And even the Israeli Knesset, the IDF, and the Israeli Mossad are powerless to pull this off. God said, I will do it. And do this, He will. And I'm not talking about the delivery of Israel as a nation birthed. I'm talking about their future deliverance. That there is a coming deliverance. A promised deliverance for Israel. And the coming deliverance will be far greater than the birth of the land and its 64 years of of hard-fought, fenced-in, terror-threatened security. Look at verse 12 of Isaiah 66. If you can get back there real quickly. Verse 12 says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip, and fondled on the knees as one whom his mother comforts. So I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Marvelous. The full eternal deliverance of Jerusalem is guaranteed to come, and how? By the righteous determination of God. And we know this. And yet we sit here and we watch what's going on in the Middle East and we go, boy, I hope they take out Iran's nuclear reactors before Iran can strike. Boy, I'm not sure. Oh, oh, who's the new prime minister now? Oh, I'm not sure. This is what I've done for 12 years. And it's Mike Freeman's fault. (laughs) I blame you entirely. You handed me that book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, and I've been messed up ever since. You ever watch a movie you've seen before? You know how it's going to end. You know the ending. But as you're watching the movie, you're going, oh, 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 no, no, oh, oh, you know? You ever read a book? You've finished the book. Maybe you've read it four or five times, but you still find yourself tensing up at those difficult moments, not sure if it's going to turn out right. And you know it will. Same thing. Same thing right here. Verse 22 of Isaiah 66 Just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your offspring and your name will endure. Who's he talking to? Israel. Israel. Back in uh, 2009, John Corson did a teaching about similar things, about Israel. And it was all based off a magazine article. Some of you may have heard this teaching. magazine article in Time Magazine that had on it, the front of it a picture of a concrete block wall with barbed wire across the top of it and the star, the Magen David, they call it, the Star of David behind that wall. Walled in. And it was offensive. Just the picture. Because on the one hand, it was the media trying to point the Jewish security fence, trying to say it's like the Berlin Wall. On the other hand, the wall looked very much like walls surrounding concentration camps back 
in the Holocaust. But the whole article that that picture was based off of inside this 2009 Time Magazine article, the whole thing was talking about why Israel can't win. Why Israel can't win. And John Corson goes through and talks about all these things. At the end of it, he he made the comment, you know what, And, and... As anti-Jewish as this article is, it's right on. Israel can't win. They're in a position today where if they allow the influx of other nations into the land, if they just absorb the Palestinian areas, Palestinians right now are outbirthing Jewish people, I think like five to one. And if they allow full citizenship and open up and, and it all just becomes one nation with the Palestinian territories being part of Israel completely and the Palestinians then having the right to vote, the right to run for office, the right to be a part of everything that's going on inside of Israel society, the Jewish state will be overrun. Unsustainable. If they keep the Palestinians where they are and the Arab nations surrounding continue to increase in their anger and increase in their ability, technology, to attack, Israel ultimately cannot survive. Unsustainable. Don't you love how God sets up things for an epic conclusion that He wins? Israel cannot sustain itself. God can. By the righteous determination of the Father. And I speak that not from my own faith, but from God's Word. When the world says, God can't, God says, watch this. Wait and see. Just as He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just as He assured His people Israel, so He will do. But I need to be clear about this one more time. Believing that is not about favoring an ethnicity. It's about putting God's putting faith in God's veracity. Believing Him. It's not about being pro-Israeli or anti-Arab. It's about being pro-God and pro-His Word. Believing He's going to do what He said. Numbers 23.19 tells us, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Or has He spoken and will He not make good? He is Gadosh Israel. The Holy One of Israel, that name given by Isaiah the prophet 25 times in the book of Isaiah, Kadosh Israel. And he knows both how to birth, how to deliver, and how to give deliverance. And that's what these three verses are all about, Charlie Brown. Israel's declaration of independence ends with this age-old dream. It ends affirming the realization of the age-old dream, the redemption of Israel. I find that so interesting. Those who wrote it were not all believers in God. In fact, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel himself, was said to be either an atheist or, or a deist. He was not real sure. And yet, in the writing of this, they call for the redemption of Israel. Many of them were thinking they wanted to redeem the land. Not recognizing God wants to redeem the people. Luke 21.27 Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, said the Jewish Jesus to a Jewish audience, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And that redemption is soon to come. So, speaking of birth and deliverance, have you been born again? 
Because all that we've talked about really is glory to a God who does what He says He wants to do. And one of the things that He declared through Jesus was that you should believe and be saved. Believe and be saved. He says at the end of the book of Mark, believe and be baptized, every one of you, and you'll be saved. Don't believe, and you'll be condemned. And it is absolutely as simple as that. Have you been born again by the God who knows how to bring delivery? God will not bring you to birth and not deliver. And I think there are an awful lot of Christians who need to know that. A lot of Christians are thinking, I gave my life to the Lord, but my life has gone downhill ever since. Or my life is really difficult. Or I'm really struggling. i got tribulation right now. What do I do with this? He does not bring to birth without bringing deliverance. Hear the Lord speak one more time. Isaiah 66, verse 9. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who gives delivery shut the womb? Paul put it another way. He said, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For we are not destined for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a special deliverance. Let's stand up together. As our elders move to the back or some up here to the front, I invite you to consider where you stand with the Lord Jesus this morning. Whether it's to reaffirm your faith in Him or to come to Him in faith for the first time, either way. Or perhaps your faith has been faltering or struggling. And what you need to hear today as we come back to over and over is God says, I will do what I said I would do. If you have any prayer needs at all, we're going to pray right now and then you can go to the front or to the back while we sing together. Let's bow. Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for Your birth into this world. The Word of God made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. So thankful, Lord Jesus, for Your determination to do what You've done. Thankful that You were born into the land of Judah. Thankful you walked that land. And you taught and you healed and you showed us God. Thankful, Lord Jesus, that outside the city walls of Jerusalem you were crucified. That you became that perfect sacrifice. So thankful, Lord Jesus, that three days later you broke the chains of sin and death and you rose again. And that you offer us now by your own uh, rebirth, literally, of eternal life, you offer us that same opportunity to be born again and to live as delivered people. And Father, I pray right now, if there are any hearts in here that are waffling on faith or belief, any that are struggling with whether or not to accept Jesus, that you would just give a nudge, Lord, and that a decision would be made to follow Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, also, for each and every heart, unsure and unstable in this world. Lord Jesus, would You give us the security that only comes by faith in Your name. Belief in Your ability to deliver. You did not bring us to be those who are born again, but left undelivered. 
And so deliver us unto Your perfect kingdom. Deliver us home to the place, Jesus, that You've prepared for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.